This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is David Gran, whose latest book is The Wager, subtitled A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. Previous books include Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI, and that is about to be a Martin Scorsese film, which is pretty amazing. And there's also The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, which I interviewed David Grant about many years ago. Also, I interviewed him for The Lost City of Z, which became a movie that I watched two days ago, <laughs> which doesn't have a lot to do with the book, but it's, it's a fun movie anyway. A couple of questions about Killers of the Flower Moon, sure. since I didn't get to interview you for that. It started as a New Yorker article. What originally put you onto the story of this strange series of murders in the 1920s? Yeah, so I made a trip out to the Osage Nation, and I visited the Osage Nation's museum. And when I was there at the museum visiting, I saw this great panoramic photograph on the wall. It was taken in 1924, uh, and it showed members of the nation along with uh, white settlers. And it looked very innocent if you were just looking at it. But I noticed that a portion of that photograph um, had been removed. Well, you mentioned that in the book, but you don't go into what put you on. What that. first? Yeah, so the first link, the first tip. So somebody had mentioned these crimes to me, the systematic killings of uh, members of the Osage Nation in the early 20th century, but I could not find much about it. So when I, wanted, when I made the trip out to the Osage Nation, at that point I wasn't planning on writing a book. I thought, well, maybe there, maybe there could be an article. I wasn't sure, um, but I was interested enough. And so it's odd, though, for a book to have kind of an origin story. And this one really did have an origin story when, in that visit to the museum when I was looking at that photograph, which I describe in the book. And the, when I asked the museum director what happened to that, missing part of the photograph, she said she had removed it because it contained this figure so frightening, and she pointed to that missing panel, and she said the devil was standing right there, and she then went down into the basement, and she had an image of the missing panel, and she showed it to me, and it was one of the killers of those age, and I just was very haunted by that missing photograph because I just kept thinking... Those age had removed that photograph because they could not forget what had happened. And yet people like me uh, and so many other people across the country uh, had not learned this history, had not learned about why the Osage had been killed for their oil money. And we had, in effect, excised it from our conscience. So that was really what began. It, it actually didn't begin as a New York article. It was too complex and too sprawling. But it was in that moment when I decided, okay, I need to try to write a book about this. And then the challenge really became is not whether I wanted to do it, but could I do it? Could I find the underlying records and the oral histories in order to narrate and document what, in fact, had transpired? Well, at that point, you were, you know, and you've been a uh, staff writer at The New Yorker. How does that work in terms of telling them that you found something? Were you planning to write a different book? 
Yeah. So, you know, they've been extraordinarily understanding and patient with me. You know, I've been at The New Yorker for so many years now, going back to 2003. So it's been two decades. And at the beginning when I was there, all I did was write magazine articles. And then at a certain point, I wrote my first book called um, The Lost City of Z. But I was really a magazine writer who who wrote a book in, in, in moonlighting, writing a book. And now I'm really a book writer who moonlights and does the magazine stories uh, in between. So at that point, you were still just doing magazines, and suddenly this comes up. Yes, this this story came up. It was so rich uh, and so important, but it was just too, too sprawling uh, a narrative to really ever condense it uh, into an article. And then New Yorker kindly did an excerpt uh, before the book came out uh, of the first chapter. It sounded as if you thought you were done, and then suddenly you learned something new. Yeah, so, you know, you never fully know what a story is about, and I'm always very conscious of trying to remain open-minded, because just like any kind of investigator, you can suffer from tunnel vision. I've written about investigators who have tunnel vision. And so this was a story, uh, when I began it, I thought of it really as um, a story about a kind of singular evil figure, which was that figure in the missing panel, the photograph, and a few of his henchmen who had committed these crimes. And this was the theory that the FBI, which had worked on the case as one of its first major homicide cases, had believed. And yet over time, speaking to many members of the Osage Nation, hearing their oral history, speaking to the Osage elders, and then visiting the archives, I began to realize that that theory was really mistaken, and that this was really less a story about who did it than who didn't do it, um, because there were many killers. Um, It was really about a culture of killing and also about a culture of complicity. You know, the more you dug into these cases, the more you realize, you know, that there were morticians who were covering up bullet wounds. There were uh, doctors who were giving poisons. There were uh, sheriffs and prosecutors who were on the take and lawmen on the take and many others who were uh, complicit in their silence. And so it kind of demolished my original notion of what the book was about. And I had to kind of, you know, begin to look at all these other cases and and almost, um, I don't want to say start from scratch because a lot of the earlier research was very helpful, but the theory of the case completely uh, changed. The Scorsese movie, which will, I guess, come out in the next few months, is that screenplay just about the earlier stuff, or does it include more? Don't you know? It's a remarkable film. It comes out in October. It's very powerful. You know, kind of follows much of the story in the book, but it concentrates in particular on what I lay out in the book in this relationship between Molly Burkhart um, and Ernest Burkhart. And Molly is kind of the, I always thought of her as kind of the soul of my book, uh, who's this kind of remarkable Osage woman who ends up marrying Ernest Burkhart and members of her family are being killed one by one. Um, And so while the book in many ways tells the story kind of as any work of history has to, kind of from the outside in, the movie is able to kind of tell it from the inside out. Is that similar to what happened with Lost City 
or was Lost City just like, we'll take a small portion and expand it? I think with Lost City Z, the, the biggest change was where the book alternated between the past and the present. So my search for this missing explorer, explorer, Percy Harrison Fawcett, who had vanished in the Amazon with his son looking for this lost city that he had called the Lost City of Z very cryptically. The book really shifts between his journey and my own journey kind of chasing him. And they made a decision, um, James Gray, the director and screenwriter, who is uh, you know just, I think, uh, brilliant as well, I mean, just a great filmmaker, he had really decided, okay, let's just focus on the, the past. past. And so that's what they did. That was the biggest change. So, And, and with Killers, too, it'll be different. I mean, the, the thing as an author is, you know, I don't expect film adaptations to be exact replicas of the books because I'm writing works of history, kind of, you know, deep documentation. And, and by their very nature, you know, you, you don't in, fully inhabit consciousness of human beings the way you do in a film. And so what you really want, or at least the thing I look for in these projects, because I am not a filmmaker and I don't pretend to be one, is that when filmmakers are interested, that you find people who care about the story, who do know what they're doing, and kind of share your same fierce commitment to the story. So they will interpret it and adapt it and it will reflect their own kind of visions. And that's fine, as long as they share that commitment and faith to the story. Well, David Grant, talking about your new book, The Wager, I guess the subtitle comes from somewhere. <laughs> um, this one actually takes you mostly out of the story. I mean, yes. you're there as the narrator filling in gaps, but this one really is about that particular era. So if somebody were to make a movie, they could pretty much just use the book. Yes. Yeah, this is, um, you know, it's interesting. I actually made a trip to Wager Island, which uh, was a little bit similar to my trip through the Amazon. I'm not a memoirist, and so whenever I put myself into a story, as I did for The Lost City of Z, and as I did for the last section of Killers of the Flower Moon, it's always, a, in some ways, I don't want to say a reluctant narrative choice, but it's a choice made if I think it will enhance or is essential to telling a part of the story, let you be a window in. And so in this case, when I went to Wager Island, which is, was a kind of crazy trip. Which we'll talk about. Yeah, we can talk about. But I don't write about my own trip. Uh, to the book. It felt kind of not right, and yet that trip breathes so much life into the descriptions. But um, this book, um, the you know, I always think the structure and the narration grows out of the material. And so each book I've done is structured and told very differently. And even the voice, I think, is often a bit different, each one. And for The Wager, because it really was a story about a war over the truth, where there is this shipwreck and some of the survivors come back and they uh, face the prospect of being hanged for their alleged crimes they committed on this desolate island, and they all begin to kind of shade their story. So that book I decided to really structure for three members of the ship, three people who have been castaways on the island, to show how they shape their story. Before we go into that particular yeah. detail, which I wanted to get into, one thing all three books have in common and we can throw in the story of the Tulsa massacre too is that these are stories that at the time were big stories but somehow vanished from history and it's really strange yeah yeah it is I mean these each of these were yeah very much 
sensations or big stories in their day. Sometimes they fade away in the kind of natural, kind of partly for the natural kind of grinding of time. But I think especially in Killers of the Flower Moon and The Wager, their fading can be um, addressed partly to the kind of systematic problems that the stories revealed in the case of the wager about the British Empire and in the case of Killers of Flower Moon about the kind of endemic racism and persecution of members of the Osage Nation uh, for their oil money. And these were stories that the powers that be were not necessarily interested in highlighting or at least highlighting in a fully honest way. The story focuses on three people who, it seems, maybe I'm wrong, it seems had the best diaries in a way. Is yeah. that, is that yeah, more well, or less it? I mean, there is some truth to that. I mean, you know, when you when you go back in time and you're writing a story about the 1740s, and, and part of the theme of the wager is about a war over stories, but also who gets to tell their stories and why do certain stories prevail and whose story. And, and so, you know, there is no question that the three people focus on were people who were deeply interested in documenting their stories or sharing their stories in a certain way. The nice thing is they are in some ways among the most fascinating people who are on that expedition and they each kind of come from a different part of society. They each have their own self-interest, their own ambitions, their own dreams. And so they're very distinctive and real. So what's nice about these three is they give you different windows, not only into the story, but into the human condition, into British hierarchical society, windows into life on a naval ship, and windows into kind of the nature of leadership and loyalty. One of them is a Navy guy, one of them is a member of the aristocracy, and one of them is just a guy, yeah. a, you know, a very smart guy, but a guy. That's kind of the synchronicity that really helps. When you began working, first of all, how did you decide to go back to it? Because, as you mentioned in the prologue, other people have sort of tackled it, including Patrick O'Brien. but. What brought you to it and this decision to go into this deep dive, which is almost like a rabbit hole yes, material? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this was a story that, you know, is very gripping in its nature. It had influenced in its day uh, philosophers like Rousseau and Voltaire, scientists like Charles Darwin, and two of the great novelists of the sea, Herman Melville and Patrick O'Brien. And I first came upon him when I was doing research on mutinies, and I came upon an account, an 18th century account, written by the midshipman John Byron, whose name, uh, if it is familiar, is because he would then go on to become the grandfather of the poet Lord Byron. His poetry is greatly influenced by what he referred to as my granddad's narrative. And, you know, when I first came across that journal, I was like, oh, it's kind of written this stilted English from the 18th century, and the uh, S's are printed as F's. And I'm like, oh, what is this thing? And But then I kept reading, and I, I kept pausing um, over uh, these descriptions, like the perfect hurricane and shipwreck and scurvy and mutiny. And I, I began to realize that this story 
really was one of the more extraordinary sagas of human survival, of shipwreck, of mutiny, and also of mayhem that I come across. But to answer your question about why do you decide to revisit a story, so in many ways the story had largely been forgotten. Patrick O'Brien had treated it in a novel, a kind of fictionalized version, one of his early novels, at least part of it. But when I began to dig deeper into the story, and I began to realize, and I would go to the archives, and I began to realize that there was this kind of war over the truth, and that you had this kind of battle over perspectives. And then I was coming home at that time, and I would turn on the news, and I'd be hearing stories of misinformation and disinformation, alternative facts and fake news, and I'd go back to these archives and be pulling up these 18th century dusty journals, and they'd be talking about misinformation, and I swore to God, fake news, all they called it fake journals. And then I'd be coming back home, and I'd be reading about the kind of wars over history and what books would get taught. I mean, there's questions whether even, you know, some teachers were afraid to teach Killers of the Flower Moon in Oklahoma. Books were piling up in a schoolroom. Um, and then I was going back to this case and uh, reading about a battle over history and who would tell this story. And so I realized that this weird little story did feel like this parable for our own turbulent times. And so that's why I decided to really go through the rabbit hole because to me it was more, I mean, it was an incredible gripping story, which you want if you're going to write a book, but it dealt with all these resonant themes that I think through a modern lens would be really important to highlight. How did the pandemic shutdown affect your research? Well, that's a good question. I was fortunate that the bulk of my archival work had been done, um, and I found somebody in England who could help make digital images of a lot of the archival material when I couldn't travel, but also even beforehand so that I could kind of turn my own office just kind of into my own private archive. So I had gathered the bulk of the archival material, so it didn't hinder it um, as much as I feared it might. And it was kind of interesting, we might get into it, but there is a section of the book that deals with diseases because on this ship, they would just suffer from one disease after the other. First, they have a typhus outbreak, but then they suffer from one of the worst maritime outbreaks a scurvy ever recorded, where it did kind of influence in a way, you know, not so much literally, but just in terms of kind of empathy and understanding was when they were suffering from that outbreak on the ship. And at that time, they didn't know what the hell caused scurvy. They didn't know what caused typhus. They didn't have an understanding of germs. And they're going around sniffing the air, thinking our smells in the air. They would bury semen in land, thinking that maybe the lamb would cure their scurvy. I mean, it's just kind of these crazy ideas. But And, and you know, I, at that time, I was leaving packages at the door, not sure, can the packages come inside? Do we have to air them out? Because we, had, we really had no idea in this first few months what the hell was going on. Right. And so I really, you know, that, that, that sense of terror that comes from not fully, not just from an epidemic, but not fully understanding what's causing it, how to stop it, how to prevent it. I happen to be working on those sections during that. So I think uh, if we, if you read the scurvy outbreak section and you feel a sense of terror, because I felt it myself. <laughs> well, I could, I could kind of tell that in reading it because... They didn't know, and it was cured by celery 
on Wager Island, and they probably had no idea what cured it either. It just suddenly got better. Yeah, it was mysterious to them. They just needed vitamin C. They didn't realize that scurvy was a vitamin deficiency caused from a lack of fruit and vegetables in their diet. There was no refrigeration on ships. And, of course, the tragedy was before they, they suffered this outbreak, they'd actually stopped in Brazil, and there were all these limes on, on this island, and they didn't actually bring the limes on board. Of course, British Navy, when they later in the century learned that scurvy could be cured by vitamin C, they would bring limes on ship, which, which is why British seamen became known as limey. So the cure had been right there within their grasp, but they were not aware of it. Uh, well... Speaking of Limey, um, toward the beginning of the book, I found it fascinating. You suddenly started giving all of these different terms that we use today. Uh, the one that I wrote down here was three sheets to the wind, and they're all from the British Navy. Yeah, they're all from the age of sail. And, you know, it's funny because I'm a generalist, so all, each of my book is about something I, I know so little about. And so I'm always so struck and astonished by things I learn. And one of the things that I was just kind of overwhelmed by as I did more research was how many of these phrases that we use that I've been using my whole life stem from the age of sails. So, you know, three sheets to the wind was when these sheets, which were ropes, let a, a sail go and the boat would kind of bounce, the ship would bounce drunkardly, like out, a little bit out of control. Um, there were other ones. There were so many. There was um, piping hot was the bosun's whistle for hot meal. Pipe down was the bosun's whistle to be quiet at night. I really love this one. Under the weather. I always thought that was like a, just a perfect metaphor for, for sickness. And it turns out, though, it was actually quite literal that on a ship, seamen who were sick, they couldn't serve on watch. So they were not on deck. And so they were below. And so they were quite literally under the weather. So I always say that history shapes us even when we're completely oblivious and ignorant of it. <laughs> uh, David Grant, what was the hardest part of the research? I think there were a couple parts. Part of it for me was just becoming immersed in this floating civilization, this floating world of, at sea. You know, I was like, I never thought I'd be writing about the 18th century. So, you know, and life on these ships was so interesting, but everything on the ship had its own name. Everybody had their own place on a ship. And I needed to become fluent. I needed, it was like learning a, a foreign language so that I had a facility with the language so that when I write it, it would never feel labored. And so I think that was part of the challenge. I'll just give a very specific example of that. Um, you know, it took me about a year just to really learn how to interpret correctly the documents, these archival materials. So some of the records I pulled were muster books. Now, when I first looked at muster books, I thought, like, these things are just look like gibberish. They're not interesting. Essentially, they, they are an enlistment uh, booklet. So when you came on a ship, your name was listed and your rank. And that was really kind of about it when you arrived. Um, but it had some symbols, so these kind of curious symbols often next to your name. And one of the symbols I kept noticing next to so many of the names was the letters DD. What does DD mean? And then eventually I learned a British naval historian informed me that DD means discharged dead. And I realized that these were seamen who had died during this expedition. And this was their epitaph. Each one of them was a soul and a life that had been lost. And I realized that this little kind of anodyne, well, they weren't so little to books, but these anodyne, seemingly gibberish books, actually held the clues, the horrific toll that this expedition had taken. Nearly 2,000 people had set sail, and more than 1,300 of them had perished. And you could catalog them and calculate them based on the number of DDs. And that's how there are po points in the book where you go, 
at this point, so-and-so semen died because you were able to trace it. The different diaries or logs with the page that says when they died, and then you can go back and see reference to these particular men earlier on and just kind of it's like a jigsaw puzzle it's like a jigsaw puzzle and you know i had all these complex diagrams with different names and different clues and created these digital databases so i could kind of access information and references uh to each person and so yeah so these i always say that documents speak in kind of startling unexpected ways and these certainly did and i'd say the other challenge but was kind of a, a rewarding one or a rich one but was, you know, I, I write this book from the point of view of each of these three men, the captain of the, the captain of the wager, David Sheep, John Bulkley, who was the gunner, and the midshipman, John Byron. And I had to kind of, the best of my abilities based on the records, kind of inhabit them and understand them. And so that was kind of a challenge, but it was a fun one. I mean, it was because they each burned with their own distinctive ambitions and churned and, you know, they're no different from any of us. Like, what you know, um, and what's so interesting about this expedition is that it was a little bit like a laboratory testing the human condition under these extreme circumstances. And inevitably it begins to reveal each person's character, their hidden nature, both the good and the bad. Well, it struck me almost as a cross between Lord of the Flies and the TV show Lost, particularly with the second group of people off to the side who did not have any kind of record. <laughs> yeah, they, they, when they get on this island after the shipwreck, they kind of they fracture into three groups. There is um, the, the first group that kind of breaks off. Um, the others referred to in their journals as the seceders, which I just love that name, the, the seceders. They are a group of kind of uh, marauding castaways that just kind of roam about pillaging. One is alleged to be a murderer, uh, uh, murdering people to steal their rations. Um, and so they are the kind of, this kind of piratical group that are kind of outside society. Um, and then within the main encampment, it eventually fractures into two principal groups. One that is remains loyal to the Captain David Sheep, who is determined to remain captain and to govern by the same rules that existed on the ship and others who are gravitating to this gunner, John Bulkley, who in many ways was the most skilled seaman on the wager, but because he did not come from the aristocracy, he knew that he would never become a commander of a warship, and yet there on that island in that democracy of suffering, he begins to emerge uh, as a commander in his own right. And what's also so interesting on that island is they hold these kind of crazy, interesting philosophical debates, you know, even when they're starving about the nature of leadership and loyalty and eventually the taboo of mutiny. And that's all in these in these logs and diaries? Yeah, very much so. You know, they are each shaping their story to emerge as the hero of it to live with the things they have done or haven't done. But they're also, and this I found fascinating, they are thousands of miles away uh, from Great Britain, from England, from the Admiralty, and yet they always have this sense that the eye of the Admiralty, like the eye of God, is peering down upon them on the island, and that if they ever make it back to England, they will be held account for any of their alleged crimes and the things they do. So they are often trying to construct a kind of unassailable story, kind of a contemporaneous story that will eventually withstand the scrutiny of a public trial and a court martial. 
Because they know what will happen when they get back. Yeah, they know. I mean, Joan Didion, a Californian, famously said, we all tell ourselves stories in order to live. And yet in their case, it was quite literally true because when they get back to England, they know if they fail to tell a convincing tale, they could be hanged. And you were able to go to the logs and compare the logs to the later books as well and see where they embellished. Oh yes. And, and yeah. And I, what's also interesting is you can also com you can compare the accounts. And this is not a case so much an instance where anyone is so much outright lying. Like if somebody shot somebody on the island, they don't deny it. The way they shape their stories I think is truer to most of us who aren't psychopathic or sociopathic or just complete criminals in that they are kind of shaping their stories and they are embellishing, as you say, or they are leaving out certain facts. It's like, what do they choose to emphasize? And I'll just give you one kind of very vivid example just in the competing accounts. And I think it's in reading all of them, you get to see not only how each is shaping the story, but I do think we get pretty close to what the truth is. But just, you know, one vivid example to me is uh, an officer uh, on the island said at one point, I was forced to proceed to extremities. I mean, it sounds like something out of, like, you know, Nazi Germany or something. You know, it's kind of bureaucratic. I was forced to proceed to extremities. And then, of course, somebody else in their journal, John Byron, the midshipman, who was only a boy at the time, you know, he writes, oh, yeah, he shot him right in the head. And the guy <laughs> bled out, basically, in my arms. And so you get to see this juxtaposition, in this kind of intense juxtaposition by shifting these perspectives, you see how what one is, you know, he did say I was forced to proceed to extremities, but he didn't actually describe the extremity. <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned at the beginning your trip. So when did you take the trip and you've done all this research and you're seeing it what is going on in David Grant's mind as he looks at Wager Island, as he looks at the Straits of Magellan, and as he goes to the same beach that these people were on for all those months? Yeah, after about two years of archival research, I began to be gnawed by that little doubt that gets you as a research thinking, can I ever fully, is, can I fully understand or grasp what had happened to these castaways unless I made a journey to the island myself. And so I found this Chilean captain who could take me from Chiloé Island, which is about 350 miles north of Wager Island. We set off. I got my first glimpse of these terrifying seas. Let me just tell you, they're pretty terrifying. Just hunkered down on the deck, being tossed about, taking every seasick medicine possible, and passing the time very foolishly by listening to Moby Dick on an audible. But then, yes, eventually I got to the island, and you know, you stand in these very places where they stood, and you, you get to see what a desolate island. It still remains this place of wild desolation. You see these trees that are bent on 45 degree angles from the unrelenting wind. And certain things that you read suddenly kind of take on new meaning. In all the journals, sometimes it could be almost tedious. They're like, it's freezing, it's freezing, it's wet, I'm hungry, it's freezing, it's freezing, it's wet, I'm hungry, you know. But when I was there, I was all bundled up. I had all these layers on, and yet I was cold. Temperature hovered around 30 degrees, but it was constantly raining or sleeting. 
And it really just occurred to me, which hadn't occurred to me until I went, it's like, oh my God, of course they're suffering from hypothermia. You know, it was in a term they would have used, which yeah. would have made their situation even more difficult to think. And, they're, they're. and then I kept thinking, you know, in the, in, the, in the journals, they describe how they can barely walk across the island. It's exhausting. And I was like, really? How? I can't walk across an island. Maybe I'm But then I tried to walk through sections of the island, and it's mountainous. The ground is boggy. And it's this intense, gnarly foliage that makes it basically impossible to walk. And sure enough, just like they describe, I could find virtually no food. There are no animals on the island. There are some birds that kind of hover about, but there's no food on the island. I found a little, you know, there's some mussels that they ate, and I found some of the sprouts of celery that they ate. But it was after that trip that I was like, it really began to understand. I could finally understand why a British officer had described the island as a place where the soul of man dies in him. Did you get over toward the Cape that they couldn't get to? Yes, I came around it. And how I, was that? Uh, it was really rough. Uh, it was really rough. Yeah, some of the castaways uh, in trying to escape tried to row across kind of one of the headlands of this gulf, which is known as the Gulf of Sorrows or some preferred called the Gulf of Pain. And it's just really rough. I mean, I just couldn't imagine them trying to row across it. I mean, even in our, you know, wood-heated vessel, you know, with a motorboat, you know, we were being tossed about. I mean, the, the currents are really strong. The winds are really strong. Um, and, you know, they were starving, too, when they're trying to row across. And they're suffering from hypothermia, and they're wet, and they have scraps of clothing. Are there any indigenous people left down there? In that area, which was once populated by the Karasquar, who visit, and there's a kind of very, uh, I think, important part of the book is this encounter between the castaways and the Karasquar, which reveals uh, some of the racism and prejudices of the British Empire and of imperialists that ends up really undermining the castaways because the care squad eventually decide to leave. They're like, we've had enough with you. And they really offered a lifeline to the castaways. Um, there are just a few, to the best of my knowledge, uh, care squad left, but they no longer live in, occupy that region. Right. And so it's barren now. Uh, they were, they had occupied the region for centuries, but were eventually wiped out by uh, contact with um with the colonists, and they were known as the nomads of the sea. Um, they were a really people who had adapted to that harsh environment over this time, so much so that NASA had actually studied how they adapted before they decided that NASA was going to put people into space. And the other thing, of course, is going back to the political end of it, is they were all sweethearts. They helped everyone, and yet they were treated with contempt. Yeah, they were mistreated by some of the castaways. And so, you know, they're bringing back them food and, and, and trying to help them. And at a certain point, after being mistreated and watching the castaways kind of descend into this Hobbesian state uh, of depravity, they like, you know, they leave. But many of the castaways who do make it back to England would never have survived without the help of the indigenous uh, in the region. Uh, David Graham, we're pretty much out of time, so a couple of quick questions. First, has this been um, optioned? Yes. You know, after watching uh, Scorsese and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and their team develop Killers of the Flower Moon with such, you know, I think really brilliance and care, they expressed interest in optioning to adapt the wager, and of course I was... Great. <laughs> so yeah. So they, um, it's you know, it's still in the early stages, but um, they have uh, optioned the material to hopefully adapt it into a film. And finally, have you begun work on another book? 
I am trying. I'm, I'm lugging around books in a suitcase with me, but I'm still struggling to find that idea, and I feel a little bit at loss or at sea. So if any listeners have a good idea, please reach out to me. <laughs> well, I keep thinking, like, Tulsa, there's got to be, and which you didn't yeah. write about, there's got to be other stories out there that have kind of been suppressed over all of these years. And the thing is, we don't know what they are. Yeah, it, the hard part is finding them because they have been often erased uh, from the history books. They're the, they're the pages of the history books that have been torn out. And just to, to kind of end on that note, there is a free black seaman on the wager, a guy named John Duck. And he manages to survive the storms and the shipwreck and the scurvy and one of these unbelievably long castaway voyages. And yet, unlike some of the other survivors, he's unable to tell his story because he is kidnapped and sold into slavery. And so his is, the, I could find no record of what happened to him. So his is one of the stories that have been ripped out of the history books. And I say that empires, in the book, empires preserve their power, not only by the stories they tell, but also by the stories that they don't tell. You've been listening to an interview with David Grant whose latest book is The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder. And Killers of the Flower Moon, the Scorsese movie, comes out in October. Special thanks to Elaine Petricelli and the folks at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California, where this interview was originally recorded. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>